From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Berry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we bring you a closer look at top stories out of our radio newsrooms across the country. On Deadline today is former President Donald Trump's fight to be on the ballot. With Trump in the midst of numerous legal battles, including two over his alleged efforts to undermine the 2020 election, some have started to challenge his eligibility to be the GOP nominee for president at all. The questions surrounding Trump's eligibility stem from a paper recently published and written by two law professors who claim the 14th Amendment revokes Trump's ability to run. To sum it up, the amendment says that if a person has taken an oath to obey the Constitution while serving as an elected official and then participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the U.S., they are barred from holding federal office. That is, unless two-thirds of the House and Senate give them amnesty, which most likely won't happen for Trump. While the provision was put into the Constitution in the 60s, the 1860s, that is, law experts say that this is the first time it's been relevant. Because never before in the history of the United States has a president been accused of trying to circumvent a democratic election. The ability to keep Trump off the ballot is only theoretical for the moment, as no judge has ruled that he's ineligible to run. But that doesn't mean no one is trying. In Minnesota, a group of petitioners brought their case before the Minnesota Supreme Court, arguing that Trump is disqualified from holding public office under the Insurrection Clause. A lawsuit alleging the same thing has been filed in Colorado, and officials in New Hampshire and Michigan have been asked or said they are considering whether Trump can run for president. Constitutional lawyer Jill Hasday joined Odyssey to talk about the 14th Amendment and whether it could actually keep Trump off the ballot. Let me start by giving a little background. The 14th Amendment, which is ratified in the wake of the Civil War in 1868, The third section in the 14th Amendment provides that if someone took an oath to obey the Constitution while they were a member of the federal government or the states, and then subsequently participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States, they are barred from holding federal office unless two-thirds of each House of Congress gives them amnesty. Even before this recent article had been written, many people had been arguing that Both Donald Trump and various other political figures were now barred from holding federal office because their role in January 6th. This new article, co-authored by my former colleague at the University of Minnesota, Mike Paulson, argues that if you look at the original understanding of what Section 3 meant, and the two authors are both conservatives who were known as originalists, they want to focus on what the uh, Constitution was originally understood to mean, they say if you look at the original understanding insurrection covers Donald Trump's activities on January 6th, where although he didn't take up a weapon, he participated in various activities, allegedly, you know, riling up and promoting the mob violence. So that was my question, Jill. You know, Donald Trump hasn't been convicted of anything that had to do with January 6th yet. So does there need to be some kind of a conviction or some kind of, I mean, proof, anything legal that would have the states or the Supreme Court be able to invoke this part of the 14th Amendment? Well, I'll differentiate between two separate questions. First is, would there have to be any legal judgment? Clearly. So one thing that's interesting about this is that sometimes people have constitutional arguments, but it's very hard to get into court because no one has a concrete interest 
that produces standing, which is a prerequisite for the court to hear the case. Here, there's many ways in which this suit can get to court. So, for instance, the state election official can refuse to include Donald Trump on the Republican primary ballot, and then Donald Trump could sue and say, I should be on. And then a court would have to decide, is he actually barred by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Alternatively, a state election official could prepare the Republican primary ballot, including Donald Trump, and then one of his opponents could sue and say, I shouldn't be competing against this guy. He's constitutionally ineligible to run. And then a federal court would have to adjudicate. So I think a court ruling on this is very likely, and there have been some rulings in parallel cases targeting other figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance. It's a separate question. Would you actually have to have a criminal conviction? These authors in this uh, current article are clearly arguing that you know criminal conviction is not necessary. While there is no precedent for blocking a former president from running from office again based on actions that could be considered an insurrection, several liberal groups have tried to block members of Congress. NPR reported that groups have tried to use the insurrection or rebellion clause against several well-known Republican members of Congress over their roles in the January 6th insurrection. Those attempts were unsuccessful. The question of whether the clause could work against Trump is a little more difficult. Law experts say that, in the end, they expect the nation's high court will end up making the decision. Former Judge Kevin Burke joined Odyssey to discuss that. It's complicated. There's a Minnesota connection in which the leading law review article on this issue is co-authored by a Professor Paulson from St. Thomas University Law School. Both of the authors of that leading uh, law review article are card-carrying members of the Federalist Society. No one would confuse them with being some kind of leftist liberals. So quite the opposite. Where I think it gets a bit complicated is Professor Paulson's article suggests there's really only one appellate court decision from the 1870s-ish in Ray Griffin, in which a black man was convicted of murder, and he claimed the judge should not have been allowed to be the judge in his case because he was quite involved on the Confederate side of the Civil War. And the appellate court said, too bad. Professor Paulson and his colleague argue that that case is just wrongly decided and it has weak reasoning, but the bottom line is it's out there. I think that what is the second kind of issue, though, is it's self-executing. So, okay, that's what the argument is. You read the Constitution, you read the amendment, and you say, well, you can't be on the ballot. But you could end up having reasonable people who will disagree. And what if those reasonable people are in a bunch of different states? So Mm -hmm. New Hampshire, there's a lawsuit. New Hampshire says, let him on the ballot. Colorado, there's a lawsuit pending. They say, kick him off. You could have chaos. Do I think he did enough, me personally? Absolutely, positively not. I think his words mattered and his lack of action mattered. However, in the court cases, Kevin, he has not been charged with the words and the charges insurrection. So how can you take him off the ballot if he isn't facing any legal punishment for the key charge which would take him off the ballot? Well, that's the argument about self-executing, that you don't need a conviction 
in order to be kicked off the ballot. Now, in Colorado, there's a trial judge who's trying to take evidence as to whether there's sufficient evidence to say that he aided and abetted, was involved in the insurrection. I honestly don't. I'm glad I'm not on the Supreme Court, (laughs) Minnesota Supreme Court, because it is a novel issue. In the back of any judge's mind, should be is if we kick Donald Trump off the ballot in the face of significant support for him, will we just create another January 6th in which his supporters will say, this is rigged? Yeah. You know, first of all, yes, I, at least I'll, I will say this much is I do not believe that you should defund the Justice Department, eliminate Jack Smith's yeah. funding, all yeah. that other kind of stuff. But if you have that going on now, it'll be on steroids if courts throughout the country begin to say Donald Trump's not going to be on the ballot. I agree with you 100 percent. Uh, and, and what we definitely know ahead. is he's a sore loser. <laughs> so there's zero chance <laughs> Donald Trump will say, well, OK, I'll get to play golf more often. I gave it a good try. That's not going to happen. Are we headed to the U.S. Supreme Court? on this decision, or will we just go state by state in this? Well, I th- I, I'm quite convinced that there will be attempts to go to the Supreme Court. I don't believe that our democracy will be able to withstand a five to four decision like Bush versus Gore. If that happens again, so pick five to four either way, mm-hmm. or six to three, in which the United States Supreme Court says, despite states saying he should not be on the ballot, we're ruling he should. I think that would be a disaster. But it's the other way, too. And the bottom line is, this is one of those issues in which, no matter how articulate I am in writing my opinion, I'm not going to move many people. There hasn't been a ruling yet. But the former president is still facing two separate indictments over his actions around the 2020 election. In Georgia, Trump is being tried alongside 18 co-defendants. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis charged them under the state's RICO laws. Willis has alleged that Trump, and the others named in the case, meddled in the state's election, going as far as to try and overturn the results by using fake electors. CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum joined Odyssey in New York to give an update on Trump's legal battle in Georgia. Let's go step by step here. First of all, why did the prosecution want to try all 19 defendants together? Well, Bridget, before we do that, if we go step by step, let's forget, remember how we became a country. King George III used to throw the colonialists in jail and forget about them. And so the founders of our country and the drafters of our Constitution, Madison and Hamilton, said, have to be a speedy trial clause. You can't just throw us in jail and not tell us what the charges are and prosecute us soon. So the two lawyers, Chesborough and Powell, they invoke those rights. And that's why they got a speedy trial. At the same time, the other co-defendants, they want to slow it down. And their view is, we can't, we won't be ready. Donald Trump's lawyer said, we're not going to be ready by November 5th. This is a sprawling, very elaborate case. So that's why the judge split it. He had no choice, right? Two of them wanted a speedy trial, the Constitution says, and Georgia's Constitution entitles them to it. And everyone else wanted to slow it down. The prosecutor doesn't like this. 
because a couple of reasons. One, uh, this gives the ability of all the other co-defendants to sit in the bleachers and watch the show. They get to learn what the evidence is. They get to hear the testimony. They get to hear the case previewed that's going to be brought against them many months later. And then the other reason is it's confusing, I think, to the jury. I'm sure the prosecutor worries, wait a minute, if we're arguing that this is a conspiracy among 19 people, how come they're not all here? What yeah. happened to those two people? Why did they get over there? If they're so indispensable to this crime of overturning the election, where are they? It can't yeah. be that it's connecting the dots. It is confusing for a jury if you break up the defendants in a conspiracy case. Okay, so uh, Thane, explain for us a little bit more too about why it behooves Team Trump to keep pushing back any deadline for it. We, we don't know when he's going to be tried in this case, correct? Right, we don't. But remember, the judge had pointed out a number of things. For instance, he said, well, you know, there's still people that may want to move the case to federal court. We can't start until we get the resolution to that. There may be other pretrial motions that we're going to hear that we haven't heard yet, Bridget, but that we will, people wanting to sever themselves for all kinds of reasons. Here's one. You're claiming 161 overt acts. My guy or my the person, my client, did one thing, for God's sakes, one thing, and you're tying him to the whole thing? I don't think he should be sitting in the same courtroom with someone else. You're going to hear all kinds of motions to separate themselves out. Donald Trump is saying, you know what? You already destroyed my ability to campaign. This issue is going to be alive during the entire primary season. Make it so that, yeah, I'm going to be able to keep pointing out that you've interfered with my First Amendment right to speak and my right to run for a public office. And by not getting it over, but actually extending it, that argument continues, right? He'll continue to tell the country, how can I possibly get a fair election result given the fact that I'm tied up in four courtrooms? With Trump still leading in the polls at nearly 40 points, it appears that Republicans will select the former president as their 2024 nominee, despite his legal challenges. If Trump's legal dramas do prevent him from getting on the ballot, there are plenty of Republicans aiming to step in as the nominee. However, none of them have the hold on the party that Trump has. 538 was tracking 10 potential GOP candidates this week, including Trump. His overall support in the party totaled more than the other nine combined. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has managed to hold on to second place in the polls. In this instance, second place winners don't get a set of steak knives. They get, in DeSantis's case, 13% of the vote to Trump's 55%. Former Vice President Mike Pence holds a meager 4%. ABC poll results released Sunday revealed that Trump also appears to have an edge against sitting President Joe Biden in the 2024 election, as the current president's approval ratings are plummeting. A majority of Democrats even reported that they wanted a new candidate to replace Biden as the nominee. Still, it's unclear if one of the more unpopular GOP candidates would have a chance against him next November if Trump was somehow kept off the ballot. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Barry, and I want to say thanks for listening to the On Deadline podcast, Odyssey's deeper look at a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed. 